You're listening to Sermon Cast Media from Antioch Community Church in Wichita, Kansas. For more of our sermons, resources, or to support this ministry financially, see our website at antiochwichita.org. So we've been talking about uh, in the sermon series called Yearn, and this is a definition for yearn that you could find in the, in the um, dictionary. That's what I was looking for, is... To have intense feelings of longing for something, typically something that one has lost or has been separated from. Now, um, I tie this into the season of Advent because that's exactly what the season of Advent is. The season of Advent is a yearning time for something that we have lost. Some of us don't even know we've lost it, but we've lost the closeness with God that we had in the garden that God created for us to have. Uh, and we long for him, the thing that we had once to come back. And that's why Advent's in two parts. Number one, as I'm always pointing over here awkwardly, we look at the manger, we see the baby. He's the fulfillment of thousands of years of prophetic words, uh, but not all of them. Um, so he fulfills the law. And then over here we see, as we look now, we're in the middle. We're looking towards this time when Jesus will come again. Amen. Excited about that? All four of us will be excited about coming. <laughs> so we look forward to that time coming. And let me say, Advent is a season. There's specific texts that go along with it, and they're not your Christmassy texts. This is different than Christmas. Advent is the season of anticipation of the birth and the anticipation of the coming again of Jesus. Advent is a lifestyle. And what I mean by that is Advent is a lifestyle is daily reminding ourselves that Jesus has come. We're saved in his grace. And part two, which is beautiful, is that he's coming again. He said, I go to prepare a place for you in my father's house. I go to prepare a place for you in my father's house. I will come. And so living like that changes some things. Living in an Advent kind of way, in a yearning kind of way, changes things. We yearn. When we yearn for him, it can help us take our mind and and yearning off the things of this earth. It can help us have peace. It can help us know that no matter what happens in my life today, the telephone rings and it's a horrible call, bad news, it doesn't matter what it is, I have hope. I have hope in the risen one who's with me, and I have hope in the risen one who is coming. Amen? So over the last few weeks, we've talked through these scriptures. And the first week in week one, we talked about staying awake and being ready for that day when he comes again. Week two, we looked at the life of John the Baptist last week and talked about how he prepared the way for Jesus. And now we prepare the way for Jesus. And this week, we're talking about proof. Everybody say proof. So over the decades, there have been many men who have declared themselves to be God. Okay, so we got Pharaoh. Pharaoh was a god, right? We have Caesar. Caesar was God. We had Charles Manson, said he was Jesus. Quacky, okay? How many of you remember that season of of Charlie Manson? Yeah, that just shows, oh yeah, that's probably predates you by like 25 years. But that's good, I'm glad. Uh, David Koresh claimed he was the Messiah. Uh, down there in Waco, and then Jim Jones, I don't know if you remember the guy in a tragedy, but Jim Jones claimed he was the reincarnation of Jesus. He's the one that led like 900 people to commit suicide, mass suicide, because the government was coming for them, and it was one of the worst cult tragedies of all times. happened down in Guyana, but they, let, they started here in the U.S., and he moved all these people down there, said he was the reincarnation of Messiah, convinced all these folks, forced some folk to commit suicide, but 900 people were wiped out. Horrible. 
Now the question is, they all claim to be God. Where are they? Deed. Everyone say deed. They're dead. They're gone. They prove nothing, absolutely nothing about them. Regardless of what you claim, there has to be proof. So if I told you that I was an Olympic, uh, what's it, an Olympic weightlifter with 0.1% body fat, would you believe me? You would. <laughs> Nate has always been very gracious to me. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you. If I told you that I was an extravagant uh, ballerina dancer, would you believe me? Some of you have seen me dance. It's not pretty. Why? Because there's no proof. There's nothing in my life that resembles what I say. And this is important today when we look to Jesus. Uh, is Jesus who he said he is? Is this all a big joke or a waste of time? And this is important in Advent. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, chapter 15, 12 through 19. It's not our text today, but it's important. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, says it again. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all people most to be pitied. What is Paul saying? If Jesus isn't who he is, who he said he is, if he hasn't been raised for the dead, then everything we're doing is futile. It's a waste of time. Think about what, what holds a church together. Is it that we all agree with each other? We all get along always like this is, we want to spend our Sundays not getting any extra shut eye, right? Some of you do it anyway. May the Lord's conviction tackle you. Uh, amen. Uh, over and over again, it's what we're doing. Paul says, if Jesus isn't who he says he is, if he hasn't raised from the dead, then we have no hope. He says, putting your hope in this, of this life only, we are people most to be pitied. The question is, did Jesus claim to be God and who was he? He says in John 10, 30, he says, I and the Father are one. In that scripture, when you have the, um, when you transfer the Greek over, it doesn't mean and the Father are like each other. We're the same likeness. We are the same. The Father and I are one. Jesus absolutely proclaims that he's God. Now listen, a lot of people will say, well, Jesus is a great teacher. Uh, even Muslims will say that, um, Jesus was a great prophet. He was a great man. And other people will say, well, I believe in all the teachers. They all, they all have their good points. We enjoy that. The problem with that is Jesus declares that he is actually God. So that means that the rest of the false claims about being gods or the prophets of God, they all become either false or you believe in all that nonsense, but we believe in Christ Jesus to be God. He proclaimed that he is God. And then the question becomes then, did Jesus prove, say prove, I'm just getting you guys warmed up this morning, all right? Did Jesus prove that he's the savior of the world or not? And is he still doing that today? So we have this thing in our head where we know that the scriptures talk about that faith is something of hope for in the unseen. Just because something is unseen doesn't mean it's unreal. Is everybody following what I'm talking about? 
And what has happened since we've become believers, for those of us who have professed Christ to be Lord, filled with the Holy Spirit, isn't it funny how now you can see, see him everywhere? Like if we are a follower of Jesus, you know that what we deserve was death and then we have the righteousness of God. Every breath we take is the grace of God. I'm gonna go into a police song. Every breath you take, every, sorry. Where's Jen? How am I doing? Too much cheese. All right. Her and Tanya are giving me the look. I'm sorry. Here's the point is um, Jesus proves that he's God. And Jesus gave proof. And if Jesus is really who he says he is and what he has done, we can have immense joy and freedom. And everything he said and promised will come true. So if everything that he has promised up till now has come true, which by the way, as believers in Christ Jesus, we believe that everything he has promised, everything that was prophesied about him, everything is prophesied about the end. If all of that has come true to a T, then we know that everything coming for us is true. We know that when he says he goes to prepare a place for me, he has gone to prepare a place for me. We know that he's coming back. We know that we are the righteousness of God. We know that this world is not our home. We know that, that in him we have peace, joy, and life. Amen? Big idea of this, this today is everything about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus has affirmed him to be our Savior, Redeemer, and our God. Now that we have experienced the power and the truth of the living God, our lives will never be the same. And let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for not leaving us. Amen to that. Any interpretation, hit me up later. Um, thank you for not leaving us. Thank you for being the living proof. Your very existence in the manger was proof that the God Almighty was who he is, would do what he said he would do, will do what you say you will do. Lord, thank you. Thank for that we are people of proof. Lord, that we are not most to be pitied because we believe in something that hasn't happened, but we as believers, our very proclamation in baptism and in coming to you in faith, Lord, is a proclamation to say that we believe the proof. We believe the proof that Jesus is God and he reigns on high and we will reign with him forever, Lord Jesus, in the new heaven and the new earth. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can see you everywhere we look. We ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So you can open your Bibles to Isaiah 61. We'll be there just for a minute, and then we're going to thumb over to Luke chapter 4. Isaiah 61, 1 through 4. This is the um, Advent text for this week. A set of texts for again and again. The text is an interesting text to do before Christmas. That's why I love the Advent, um, the season of Advent. Isaiah 61, 1 through 4 says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, um, to the captives and opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, 
to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations." So this is Isaiah. This is 700 years, say 700, 700 years before Jesus comes. And in that, it talks about this amazing love in the book of Isaiah when Messiah will come, set the captives free. Uh, If you read through Isaiah chapter 53 in different places, it is alarmingly amazing how the book of Isaiah paints the picture of this coming king over and over and over again, and Jesus fulfills it accurately to a T. Like literally 700 years before, they used to think, you've heard me talk about this before, they used to think the book of Isaiah was written in two parts, where Christians were trying to fool people, or the Jews were trying to fool people, that they wrote half the book in the beginning of the book, and then later after the birth of Christ, and after the life of Christ, they went in and filled in the other second half of the book, and that, that, that made the book of Isaiah. The only problem with that is, in the 40s, um, the 40s and 50s, they had this thing called the Dead Sea Scrolls, where they found ancient, 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 complete manuscripts of the book of Isaiah. And all of a sudden, we get to do this again. Ha <laughs> <laughs> So the Dead Sea Scrolls had complete books of Isaiah, and they've gone on to find more since then. So we know that once again, it is true. So this is huge for them. They're longing for Jesus to come back. Now go over to Luke chapter 4, 16 through 22. We see Jesus coming. Um, it says this, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and was his custom. He went to the synagogue on Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. So here he is. Jesus goes to Nazareth. What's important about Nazareth? It's where he's from. He went to, it's where he grew up. He also went to the synagogue. That's a normal thing. That was what these people did. Uh, their world circled around synagogue. Uh, the order of service in a synagogue always began with opening prayer. Then they had praise. Then they had a reading of the law. Then they had a reading from the prophets. And then a sermon, and perhaps uh, from a learned visitor they have sometimes. Moving on to verse 18, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is Jesus reading the scroll. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus reads what? The text from Isaiah that we read originally, this was 700 years before. He reads the Isaiah scripture, but then he stops in the middle of it. Jesus splits the script. Say, splits the script. Jesus splits it in half and he doesn't read, he omits, in the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified, that they shall build up the ancient ruins, that they shall raise up former devastations, and they shall repair the ruined cities and devastations of many generations. So we need to see something. This is so important in Advent. 
why would Jesus sit down and read the scrolls or stand up and read the scrolls, stop, and we're going to learn this in a minute, and leave off the second half? Well, this is an amazing picture of Advent. It's like this. You ever seen what a mountain looks like when you look to it in the face? And you can see, Jared, maybe you could talk about mountains. If you have like five mountains that are all in a row, all summited together, all put together, you would see five different viewpoints, right? But what happens if you went to the end of the mountains and you looked and you looked straight at them, what would you see? You would see one mountain. And so as they prophesied in the Old Testament, the Jews thought everything was coming down to one big cataclysmic event where Jesus returns, Messiah returns, he straightens everything, he knocks down the enemies of of Christianity, destroys Rome to whatever it is, and that's it. The problem with that is it's it's not the way it is. As the scripture unfolded, Jesus being there just as he was, why do you think all of his disciples kept asking him, is it your time, is it your time, is it your time, are you going to put down the Romans, are you going to put down, and over and over again, what did Jesus say? That's in his language. He doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't do that. What does he do? He goes and he dies on a cross. And so there is great confusion amongst the Jews because they thought this one cataclysmic event was going to come and change everything. But Jesus splits the text. It was not how they would read this, but it's what happens. Um, The rest of the text in Isaiah was seemed to have everything to do with the second and final coming of Jesus. So the first part of the text has to do with what we're going to talk about here in a minute, that Jesus has come. And the second part of the text has to come when he's coming again. Judgment of the Lord, resurrection of God's people, new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem. So in verse 20, he rolls up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. If there was ever a moment in time where words were said, where there was an explosion in a place, it's right here. Jesus literally read their sacred book of Isaiah, read through half of it, and then he sits down and he says, today, here it is. Today, here it is. If you can imagine the explosion that goes off in the room with these Jews. And we see that as he starts to, as he moves on. And this amazing thing comes out of his mouth that today the scripture has been fulfilled. Everyone was looking at him. Everybody's waiting for teaching. And Jesus says, here it is today. I'm it. Can you imagine how they had been learned and trained their entire lives to long for this Messiah? They're looking for this one cataclysmic event to happen. And all of a sudden, this local kid, Joe's boy, from Nazareth, right? The carpenter's son is, uh, is, uh, is all of a sudden proclaiming that he's the Lord. Uh, I wonder sometimes what my heart would be like if I was in the middle of that. I wonder if I would be like, no, that's Jesus. Or if I would be like, yeah, uh, I'd be like one of the knuckleheads. Amen? And all spoke well of him in verse 22 and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? At first, they were in marvel and revelation of what he said. And then things start to change. And we know that right after this, they try to kill him. And so as we're looking at this, something turns, and then they begin to resent him. Isn't this Joseph's kid? Now, why would they balk at him saying that? Because Jesus just said, I am the Messiah. I am God. It's a big issue for them, right? Back to this text, when he says, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
Luke 14, 18 through 19, when he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor because he's he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Listen, all of those things he meets to a T. Number one, the spirit of the Lord is on him. Matthew chapter three, Luke chapter three, what do we see? Jesus is baptized. The spirit of the Lord descends on him like a like a dove, right? Also, the next one, he's anointed to proclaim the good news to the poor. He is the good news. We are the poor. This isn't just a literal financial poor. This is a life poor. We are spiritually bankrupt without him. He is the one to come and proclaim the good news to the poor. And the next part of it says, sent, sent to proclaim liberty to the captives. Captives to what? Not to Rome, not to a bad uh, Republican slash Democratic governmental system. Uh-oh. captives to sin. He came to set free the sinner. It also goes on to say recovering sight to the blind. Is it just the physically blind? Is it the physically blind? It is, but there's more to it. It's also the spiritually blind. And now because of his grace, we can see. And he sets liberty to those who are oppressed. Oppressed by who? The devil, the world, and the flesh. We have been oppressed, and now we have been set free. Amen? Morrison says this. Thankfully, Jesus didn't come to only preach deliverance or even to bring deliverance, Jesus came to be deliverance for us. Christ was the great enemy of bonds. He was the lover and light of liberty. Amen? And when he recalls, um, as you recall, it says, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You ask, what is that? Is that when Jesus comes back? Uh, in Leviticus 25, we see that they had a Sabbath day. They had a Sabbath year. They had seven sets of seven. Then they had a year of Jubilee. Everybody say Jubilee. Jubilee. On that day, and this is what it says, uh, when it talked, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, they called that the year of the Lord's favor, where all slaves would be set free. All debt would be canceled. Uh, things would just be made right. In the seventh year, the seventh cycle, uh, it would be called Jubilee. So Jesus is saying, proclaiming, when he says proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, he seems to be pointing to it's a year of the Lord's favor. This is a Jubilee. Jesus coming back was Jubilee. Sins forgiven, grace given. Amen. Jesus fulfilled every one of these things that was prophesied. He says, I am the fulfillment of the promises of God. So over and over again throughout the ages, um, we see that Jesus is proving who he is. And so I just started thinking about what are some ways scripturally, and by the way, if you don't believe in the Bible, then you'll just roll your eyes at this anyway, but since we are followers of the Bible, followers of Jesus, um, we know that there are some simple things that God has done in the scriptures to prove that he's God. Number one, his birth. The angel Gabriel shows up to this young girl named Mary. And he said to the angel, said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Does that happen? Yes, she gives birth to this kid, and she names him. Jesus, and he ends up to be Messiah. Next, the very mouth of God proclaims proof. Matthew 3, 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John, to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptizing you. I need to be baptized by you. Uh, and, and you do come to me. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for this thus is fitting for us to fulfill righteousness. Then he consented 
And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, listen, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Even the very mouth of God proclaims that Jesus is who he is. John the Baptist, if we looked and we looked last week at John the Baptist, some of the scriptures about him, there was a man sent from God, it says in John 1, whose name was John. His, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might, have, might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Then we have his very words. John chapter 1, 29 through 34 says this. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is whom I, I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain. This is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And listen to John's words. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the son of God. John the Baptist, Jesus calls him the greatest man ever. He looks in, he looked at the scriptures and, G, and John the Baptist was, while he was a good man and there was a powerful man in his own right, his own disciples couldn't figure out why he was okay with his disciples going over to Jesus. Uh, and this is what he says, that's him. That's the point. He's the reason I'm here. He's the one I was talking about. He's the one that I set apart for and gave my life to. What about his life and miracles? If you look through, there are 37 different uh, miracles in the Synoptic Gospels in the book of John. Uh, I'm going to read all of them to you. Turns water into wine in Canaan, John 2. Has an exorcism at the synagogue of Capernaum in Mark 1. Huge catch throwing down their nets in Luke 5. Healed a dead young man in Luke 7. Cleanses a leper in Matthew chapter 8. Heals a paralyzed servant of the centurion, uh, Matthew chapter 8. Healing the mother of Peter's wife in Matthew chapter 8. Casting out demons in the spirits at sunset with a word. Matthew chapter 8, calming the storm, Matthew chapter 8, took demons out of two possessed men, uh, out of two possessed men and into pigs in Matthew chapter 8, healed the paralytic at Capernaum in Matthew chapter 9, heals the daughter of Jairus in Matthew chapter 9, heals the bleeding woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, Matthew chapter 9, healed two blind men in Galilee in Matthew chapter 9, exercising a mute, and not like exercising a mute, <laughs> exercising a mute, see Leanna just in case you're wondering. In Matthew chapter 9, healing a paralytic of Bethesda, John chapter 5. Healed a man with, with, with a withered hand in Matthew chapter 12. Healed a demon-possessed man and a mute man in Matthew chapter 12. Uh, healed a woman with a disabling spirit in Luke chapter 13. Fed 5,000 in Matthew chapter 14. Walks on water in Matthew chapter 14. Um, healing in Gethsemane in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 14. Healed a Canaanite woman's uh, possessed daughter in Matthew chapter 15. Deaf, mute of Decapolis heals in Mark chapter 7. Feeds 4,000 in Matthew chapter 15. Blind man in Bethesda again heals in Mark chapter 8. Transfiguration of Jesus, Matthew chapter 17. Boy possessed by a demon, Matthew chapter 17. Coin in a fish's mouth was a miracle. Amen? Amen. How many of you can pop a coin out of, uh, for your taxes put out of a fish's mouth? Not me. Man with dropsy heals him in Luke 14. Cleanses the 10 lepers in 17 in Luke. The blind at birth, uh, John chapter 9. Heals the blind man near Jericho, Matthew 20. Raised Lazarus from the dead, 
John 11, uh, curses the fig tree in Matthew 21, heals the ear of the servant that Peter hacked off in Luke 22, and the catch of 153 fish in John 21 after the resurrection, approximately 37 miracles. And then the scriptures go on to say, John goes on to say in John chapter 1, verse 25, he says, now there's also many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that it was be written. Here's another way he proved himself. I won't read 75 ways this time. The cross, his resurrection and the ascension proved that he was God. The road to the cross and the crucifixion, if you read Isaiah chapter 53, point by point by point, 700 years before he was born, come true in Messiah. Um, when he gave up his spirit on the earth, the scriptures say the earth shook and the veil tore, which was not just a happen chance. It didn't just kind of uh, happen because of this great earthquake. The Lord literally split the veil in half, seven inch thick piece of fabric, just split it in half to show what? To show that we no longer have separation from God. We can be in the inner courts and the closeness of God. Amen? Amen. That proved, affirmed who he was. You can, you can hear some of the words in the New Testament of some of the Roman soldiers when everything started shaking and the sky turned black and all I could say is they went, uh-oh. Right? That's my best abridged version. Three days later when he appeared to the women and the disciples and he utters those words, Mary, he affirmed that he was who he was. When he appeared to 40 of them after his resurrection, listen, he, he showed himself to 500 people in the period between the resurrection and the ascension. And when those 40 days, at the end of those 40 days, he ascends into heaven and the testimony of the angels, they ask why you're standing around. Jesus affirms himself over and over and over again. And then last one on here is another way of proof is the coming of the Holy Spirit. Ten days after that, after the ascension of Jesus, the Holy Spirit descends on them like he promised. He affirmed the Holy Spirit proved Jesus' words in Acts when he said to go and wait till power to come on you. And Joel 2 comes into fruition that Peter speak in the sermon and he uses this uh, on the day of Pentecost. But he says in Joel 2, 28 through 32, shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit point is time and time and time and time and time again Jesus proves who he is how does he do that in us now how does he prove himself in us now number one uh, through his spirit like, you ever have those days like, God, I don't know if you still question the existence of God on certain days. I don't. But if you want some real proof of God is with you, is he, the question is, Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. If you have conviction from the Holy Spirit, there's proof that there is God. If you operate in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, there's proof that there is God. If there's a still small voice that walks with you and whispers in your ear or screams at you sometimes if you're like me and needs a little bit more of a 
forceful voice in my life. Listen, those things, do not take them for granted. The Holy Spirit moving in your life and your heart is proof that Jesus is who he says he is because Jesus sent the Spirit, the counselor, to be with us. Amen? We see him through his church. He proves it to us in his church. I have seen so many things happen in this room, in our house churches, over and over again. Kipton, I think about you watching your life of restoration and being brought up out of addictions and seeing families healed and seeing, seeing death. Today we celebrate a marriage that is all about resurrection and about new life. Amen? Uh, in his church, scripture says that we are his body and we're a unified head. If you think about it, as I said earlier, this shouldn't work. This should not work. We don't always agree on all the things. We could talk about politics, get into a fist fight. Uh, we could talk about what you think about A, B, C, or D. All of those things are worldly things. We are united. What holds us together, which gives us grace for one another, is that we have a head. His name is Jesus, and we are a body. And what's bigger to us is bigger than all of the other junk. Jesus is more than the other junk we disagree on. And to that, in a group of people in 2023, that's proof. That's proof that he is who he is. Our very church still standing is proof that Jesus is who he is. Amen. Uh, here's another way, just through our restoration. Uh, you want to know there's proof that there's God? My wife and I have been married for 26 years. At one point, it was, it was over. At one point, it was done. But Jesus and only Jesus stepped in. Little boy that was, oh, I call myself little. I've never been little. Okay, fine. Um, the 17, 18-year-old kid uh, living in his buddy's basement, this was after the whorehouse, sitting for Christmas with a bottle of Jack, sitting there watching It's a Wonderful Life, being totally alone and wanting to die and kill myself. There's proof in my life because Jesus stepped in and he was the only one that came out of that. He's the only one that came out of that. All of your restoration, every single one of you, whether it's from addictions or just from selfishness or fear or lying, every single thing that you have come through, that Jesus has come through is proof that he's a good God. And aren't we just like Israel? We're just like Israel. We walk through the Red Sea and then we keep moving on and then we demand more, right? But if you stop and look back and go, woo, Jesus brought me through the Red Sea. I walked through the valley of the shadow of death. My marriage was a mess. My fear was a mess. My anxiety was a mess. And Jesus and only Jesus rescued me. Don't take it for granted. Amen? Psalms 23, 4, just through our tragedies, it's the same thing. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, and they comfort me. And uh, this I want to share. Um, he will prove himself again. We always read Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, 
prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall thou be mourning or crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. You know, another time Jesus is going to prove it to you is when his thumb touches your face. When he wipes away those tears. When he ascends back on the cloud and comes to take us home. So, is there proof? There's no reason to be hopeless. There's no reason not to forgive. There's no reason to keep self-medicating. There's no reason to live lukewarm. Can you imagine we are, we are people who proclaim that God is who he is? We are people that proclaim that we are spirit-filled men and women that believe in the miracles of Christ, in the life of Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ. We believe that he is truly God. Then the question is for us, hard question is, how do we live lukewarm? What happens in our life to where we get sleepy? It's we forget the resurrection story. We forget about who he is and we get so, do you realize the devil doesn't have to make you stab your neighbor? The devil just has to keep you in your phone for an extra 20 minutes. The devil just has to keep you preoccupied for a little while because he knows our attention spans are gonna be off and blasted in some different way. He doesn't have to be that crafty. There's no reason to hold on to this world. There's no reason to raise my kids like the world says I should. There's no reasons not to live out his heart for city and missions and the nations. Amen? This quote, people not only need to hear us affirm him with our mouth, but they also need to see us affirm the God of ages with the actions of our lives. So now you're the proof. You are the walking, talking proof, proof of heaven and the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Jesus. Uh, you're the proof where you walk. And this is why people watch us. So if, if they understand what's going on, people watch us through the critical lens and an eye lens. And when we screwed up, we really screwed up because we are representing the kingdom of God. Do I affirm with my life that I actually don't have a religion, just an empty bodied religion, but I have a holy religion. I have one that follows after Jesus, that loves the orphan, loves the widow, loves the lost, loves the poor. Am I someone who lays down my life for my family, for my friends? Because those are not just things he told us to do. Those are affirmation promises. Those are affirmation that God is who he says he is. When I am walking by the Holy Spirit, that is affirming Jesus. Jesus is who he is. Amen? Uh, everybody say, proof is everywhere. Aren't you glad that we follow a God that is true? Come on, remember being hopeless? Remember being without promise? Remember being without joy? Back to our big idea for the day. Everything about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus has affirmed him to be our Savior, Redeemer, and our God. Now that we have experienced the power and the proof of the living God, our lives will never be the same. Amen.